Here's a sound from the golden age of Sudanese music, the 1960s and 70s. The orchestra of legendary singer Abdelaziz Al-Mubarak captures the unique marriage of Sudanese folk rhythms, Egyptian strings, and Western synthesizers that made the era of Sudanese big band swing so special. This comes from a new release called Two Niles to Sing a Melody, the violins and synths of Sudan. Georges Collinet with you on a special edition of Afropop Worldwide. It's been 10 years since we told you the story of Sudan, a fascinating but troubled East African nation. In fact, since 2011, it is now two nations, as South Sudan has won a fragile independence. We'll check in on the current state of music in the two Sudans, but first, a little refresher as we sample our original report from 2008, a time when many Sudanese were still fighting to keep the nation one. If you know anything about Sudan, you probably know it has been the scene of fierce and prolonged conflicts, a civil war between North and South, and the genocidal military campaign in the western province of Darfur. Behind these tragedies lies the remarkable history of a richly multicultural nation and a long search for common ground. Turmoil in Sudan has led to the formation of diaspora communities around the world, and this too has affected the country's musical traditions. On this program, we'll hear music from many parts of Sudan and its diaspora. To help us understand how all these stories fit together, we have a brilliant professor of Sudanese history at Ohio State University, Ahmed Sikangia. Here he is to set the scene. Sudan first is the largest country in Africa. It shares border with Egypt in the north, uh, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, the Congo, Central Africa Republic on uh, the southwest, Chad in the west, and Libya in the northwest. Uh, the main geographical feature is the Nile, which straddles the country from south to north. Sudan is perhaps one of the most diverse countries in Africa. Its population represents, could say, a multitude of uh, ethnic, linguistic, and religious uh, groups. They include Arabic-speaking, as well as Nubians, Bija, Nuba, Dinka, Shuluk, Zandi, West African immigrants such as uh, Hausa, Fulani, and Bernou. Egyptians, Middle Eastern, uh, Coptic Christians, and so forth, just to name a few. Sudan's best-known music reflects that diversity. It emerged during the so-called Golden Era, following Sudanese independence in 1955. That's a history Sudan shares with many other African nations. Once the burden of colonial rule lifted, music flourished. So let's start there, with a vintage 1960s track by Osman al-Shafi. The song is Ayamna. Yeah. 
Osman Al Shafi from the golden era of Sudanese music. Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide's Musical History of Sudan. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, and Merck, where patients come first. Sudan's history goes back to biblical times, when the mysterious kingdom of Nubia thrived in the lush valleys of the Nile River. The Nubian legacy survives today in both Sudan and Egypt, countries linked by history and by that fabled river. Later came the rise of Coptic Christianity, and then the Islamic kingdoms of Fung and Darfur. An Ottoman Egyptian ruler, Mohammed Ali, invaded Fung in 1821, and so began the 60-year Turco-Egyptian period in Sudan. This was a harsh time, because Ali's objective was to build a slave army and continue his conquests. Here's historian Ahmad Sikengia. Most of the captives actually were drafted into Muhammad Ali's army, but many were sold either in the markets in the Middle East or northern Sudan. So slavery and the slave trade became widespread in the Sudan in the 19th century. And many traders and adventurers from the Middle East, uh, Northern Sudan, uh, as well as a few Europeans, established uh, their headquarters in Khartoum, the capital, and engaged in the business of ivory and slave trade. But uh, under uh, growing pressure from European governments, the Turco-Egyptian government tried to end the slave trade in the 1870s by extending its control over the equatorial provinces. And that's actually how the regions of southern Sudan was incorporated into the present-day modern Sudan. That was in the late 1870s. Uh, They did it basically uh, through the employment of European officers, uh, such as Samuel Baker, later on uh, General Gordon. England and Egypt assumed joint control of Sudan from 1898 to 1955, but the British called the shots. In the 1920s, they decided fatefully to rule the North and South as separate entities. And not until the late 40s did the British reverse this policy and treat the South as part of a unified Sudan. For much more on this history, visit afropop.org and read our complete interview with Ahmad Sikengia. It is fascinating and, of course, it all plays out in the realm of music. Violinist and arranger Mohamed Ali Mergani 
began his career in Sudan with a famous ensemble called Al Samandal, pioneers in fusing and modernizing Sudanese traditions. Since 1996, Maestro Mergani has directed the Nile Strings Orchestra, based in Virginia, USA. He says today's Sudanese music evolved from an early style called Hakiba. Hakiba is like the early tries of uh, playing songs, music and all that stuff. Before that, it used to be a kind of like religious songs, music, we call it Madih. So people just uh, singing songs about the prophet, about the religion, about the values and all that. And then it developed into the Hakiba songs, which are just one singer accompanied by three vocalists clapping behind him and repeating the same verses. And after that, instruments came and played the role of the back singers. Then came the other kind of songs like national songs, love songs and all that. And after that, like in the mid 40s and 50s, they start the era of modernization during the British colonial period. So we got the Western instruments inside Sudan, like the violins, accordion, uh, piano, double bass and the cello and the piccolo. So the Sudanese musicians export to these other instruments they never known before and start developing. And then uh, we had the Ferris College for Music in 1969. And from there started, if you will, another revolution. Most of the major figures of 20th century Sudanese music either studied or taught at Hatoum's legendary Institute of Music and Drama including Mohamed Mergani. When he talks about a musical revolution, he's referring to the emergence of a unique orchestral tradition in Sudan. It's the sound heard on this vintage track by Mohamed Wardi. People think when they see the Sudanese musicians play uh, violins or strings in particular that, oh, this is going to sound like the Arabic or the Egyptian music, but it is not. This is due to the fairies who brought this instrument to Sudan were the British who were ruling the Sudan that period for a long time, almost 80 years. They played the Irish and the Scottish tunes plus our own tunes were in the pentatonic scale, which is like five tones instead of the whole seven notes of the scale. As in other young African nations, the mingling of ethnic, national and international traditions came together through the magic of radio and television. The city of Omdurman is the home of the Sudanese TV and radio stations, which in the 40s and the 50s was very vital. This city is like a pot where all the Sudanese, ethnic Sudanese from different tribes came and settled like 50, 60, 80 years ago, representing more than 300 tribes in Sudan. Historian Ahmad Sikengia says this mixed urban milieu was something new in Sudan. Colonial rule brought rapid social and economic change, the growth of urban centers, uh, rural urban migration, uh, you also have the abolition of slavery. Uh, so many marginal groups had moved into the cities in different parts of the Sudan and established their uh, neighborhoods. And in these neighborhoods, 
They developed a very vibrant, popular culture involving music, public festivals, and so on. Now, uh, the most critical development was the establishment of Radio Umdurman during World War II. Uh, now, it's important to point out that the radio was established by the British mainly as a war propaganda uh, machine, but in fact, it evolved to become the main radio station. So you could really say that uh, the period 1940s, 1950s, uh, throughout the 60s was a peak. I mean, it was really the golden age of uh, Sudanese music. You have a variety of styles, you know, from uh, traditional Sudanese music to jazz bands exhibiting the influence of North American, uh, Latin American, even Congolese and, and so forth. But also Khartoum was a highly cosmopolitan town with clubs, uh, dance halls, cafes, uh, movie theaters and even bars and so on. Perhaps the greatest singer Sudan's golden age produced was Mohamed Wardi. Wardi famously befriended Louis Armstrong and helped introduce jazz and other contemporary influences into the Sudanese sound. Even if he hadn't been a great innovator, his voice alone was enough. <laughs> The great Mohamed Wardi on Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep Edition, Sudan, Musical History, with Professor Ahmad Sikenga and yours truly, Georges Collinet. We asked Professor Sikenga to assess the career of Mohamed Wardi. Well, I mean, this is like really the, the largest giant of Sudanese music. Uh, he was a teacher, uh, and he came to Khartoum and he started singing in 1957. And at that time, you know, there were very few Sudanese singers. Besides his, you know, talent, uh, he was a political activist as well. His uh, songs inspired uh, many uprisings throughout the, the modern history of the Sudan. He was in prison several times, and this is especially after uh, the 1964 uh, revolution. There was a, an attempted communist coup in 1971, and after the failure of that coup, he was uh, detained for more than a year. And uh, after the, this regime came to power in 1989, uh, he had to leave the country and lived uh, in exile for many, many years. Recently went back and he still uh, lives in Khartoum. Mohamed Wadi traces his heritage to the northern kingdom of Nubia, and this was part of his musical identity as well. 
The music of Nubia brings us to a crucially important act from the latter part of the Golden Era, a trio of sisters known as Al-Balabil, the Nightingales. Meshena, 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 fi tariq al-hub. Meshena, 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 fi tariq al-hub. That's two of the three sister nightingales, Hadja and Amal. The song they are singing is the one that brought them onto the Khartoum scene back in the 70s. There had been other women in Sudanese music, most famously Aisha El Felatia, the darling of the Sudan Defense Force during World War II. But just the same, Hadja says Khartoum was a tough environment for female artists. When we started singing, it was very hard for females to be singers or dancers or actors or whatever, because it's, it's a, it was a matter of traditions and customs and this stuff. For us, we were very young in high school when we started, and uh, our dad and the mom and the family, they supported us very, very, very strongly. It wasn't just a matter of music for us. We were trying to change the ideas and the traditions, and we succeeded in that. The Nubia people, they are more modern than the middle of the capital or when you go south of Sudan. Even in our language, we don't have he and she. Yes. We don't have female and and male. But in Arabic language, you have this difference. In our dance, in our songs, the women and men, they are together. But when you go to Khartoum, women are separate and men are separate. These ladies are on a mission to promote gender and cultural diversity in Sudanese music. When we met, they clapped out a Nubian tar rhythm. This is the Nubian rhythm. One of the Nubian Nubian rhythms. And they shared one of their Nubian songs. We realized that Sudan is a multicultural country. But there was a time that when you listen to radio or TV, you don't see all these cultures. As Sudanese, you don't see it. Because the radio station or the TV, they were not aware of the importance of making me see you and feel like one. You see what I mean? But this was our job to do. You have to go travel and sing here and there and there and there. We've been singing everywhere in Sudan. Here's a recording by Al Balabel. The song is Tuba.
Balabil, the Nightingales, on Afropop Worldwide's musical history of Sudan. Another important figure from the golden era, Abdel Gadir Salim, made a huge success with music from the western central province of Kordofan. Give him the scale of Lemumbara. You may recall the private performance Abdel and some of his musicians gave Afropop at the Music Métis Festival in France in 2002. <laughs> During the golden era, Abdel Gadir Salim succeeded in making Kordofan rhythms, especially the cantering merdum, part of mainstream Sudanese music. Moving west from Kordofan, we come to Darfur, now sadly famous for the brutal genocide unfolding there. Historian Ahmad Sikengia says this is not really a fight over ethnicity or religion, but rather national resources. And the problem goes back to the joint Egyptian-British regime that preceded Sudanese independence. One of the most important features of colonial policy was uneven development in the sense that it concentrated economic development in the central part of the Sudan, and social services, education and so on, and neglected the uh, different regions such as the south, therefore the east and even the far north. So this pattern of uh, unequal development is really uh, the main factor behind 
the continuing uprisings and uh, conflicts in different parts of the, of the Sudan, including the Darfur conflict. And unfortunately, this pattern continued even under the post-colonial Sudanese governments. The present Sudanese regime has been especially cruel, sowing seeds of division among Darfurian tribes, even as it starved them of support and resources. Given all that, it might surprise you to learn that music of Darfur has won some notice on the Sudan scene, in large part thanks to Omar Isas. That's Omer reprising the Arabic song he used to audition at the Institute of Music and Drama back in 1981. The title means feeling, and it gave Omer his stage name, Isas. But songs like this were not Omer's first love. He grew up in Darfur in the 60s and 70s and fondly recalls the easy blending of traditional music that surrounded him. Every year, the tribes gathered peacefully to share their traditions. When we met in New York, Omer delighted in drumming out Darfurian rhythms on his guitar. Omer is explaining that after 10 years of trying to fit into the music scene in Khartoum, he realized he was making a mistake. He says only five or six ethnic styles were well represented on the national stage. So he decided to shake things up with the rich folklore of Darfur. It took years and hard work, but Omer is now celebrated for what he calls Sudanese songs from Darfur. Here's Omer Isaz with his band. The song is Darfuria. From Darfur, Sudan, Omar Hissas. Well, we're revisiting history and music in Sudan with historian Ahmad Sikenga. Coming up, more from our 2008 program and an update on what is now two countries, Sudan and South Sudan. Visit Afropop.org to read both of our interviews with Ahmad Sikenga and learn about new releases of Sudanese music. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International.
are hearing a cassette of traditional music from Sudan's eastern province. This is not a sound well represented in Sudan's mainstream pop mix, but then check out that groove. Just ahead, the music of the Sudanese South. But first, let's update our history. Since independence in 1955, Sudan has moved through a series of brief civilian administrations and longer military ones. Two dominate, the rule of Ghaffar Mohamed al-Nimeri from 1969 to 83, and that of Umar Hassan Ahmad al-Bashir from 1989 to the present. Let's start with Nimeri. Here's historian Ahmad Sikengia. Nimeri was a survivor. Initially, he was uh, supported by the communists. Actually, he used them to deal with the sectarian parties. And then after he dealt with the communists, he signed a peace agreement with the Thaos. So the Thaos for quite some time became the main base of his support. Then in the late 1970s, there was a continuous opposition on the part of uh, religious parties as well as the Muslim Brotherhood. And they made several coup attempts against him. So he felt that he cannot just rely on the support of the Thaos. And at that point, he engaged in what is called national reconciliation. And that's when he brought uh, the sectarian parties, the Ummah and uh, the National Unionists, but most important, the Muslim Brothers. Uh, and that actually what really helped the Islamist movement uh, to take advantage of the situation and uh, establish uh, a very strong economic base as well as uh, political uh, support. It was during this period, actually, that the Islamists began to plan uh, for the future takeover of power. So it's always important to remember that uh, although there are several constituencies that demand uh, or embrace this idea of an Islamic state, it has never been actually implemented except under military regimes. Nimeri introduced Sharia law to Sudan in 1983 and began closing down bars and other entertainment establishments. He was overthrown amid popular uprising in 1985, but relief from oppression was brief. In 1989 came another military coup and the beginning of real trouble for Sudan. Well, to begin with, the regime actually overthrew a democratically elected government and established perhaps one of the most oppressive and dictatorial regimes in modern Sudanese uh, history. It actually inaugurated uh, a regime of terror. Political activity was banned, freedom of expression was uh, completely abolished. Thousands of people uh, were uh, either detained, tortured, uh, sometimes killed. It also uh, pursued the uh, war in the South with great vigor, actually executing the war or framing it uh, in the form of jihad. The regime's campaign of Islamization and Arabization extended to every corner of Sudan, and its effects on musical life were devastating. They viewed all the sort of liberal and secular practices in Sudanese society as a form of a heresy. Uh, there were uh, numerous public orders and laws, very started with curfews, 
banning parties, even private parties such as wedding parties. Until today, actually, people have to get permission to uh, hold uh, these uh, parties. Sometimes the security forces break into people's homes, and if the parties uh, go after 11 o'clock, quite often performers were you know, beaten or imprisoned. Artists whose music once filled concert halls and spread via radio and television found themselves reduced to playing private parties, constantly under threat, while the media switched to exclusively religious and propagandistic broadcasts. Amid this fiercely anti-cultural mood, there was a widely reported attack at the Musicians' Club in Omdurman, in which the singer Kogali Osman was killed, and two others, including Abdelgadir Salim, were injured. Singer, composer, and arranger Yusuf El Mosli had just returned from Cairo with his master's degree in music when the 1989 coup occurred. A rising star at the time, Yusuf came under pressure to back the state. Ah, not a chance. No, I refused that completely. I began to be asked many times to be brought to the security and also because I was the head of the composition department, they asked that an institution, the, the students, to participate in their celebration, and uh, we refused that, and then they closed that institution for two years and a half. Yeah, and I, I, I am, as a, a singer musician, I'm not against any uh, political thoughts, but I have my message. I have to sing about love, I have to sing about peace in Sudan, I have to sing about freedom, about democracy, about things that it is necessary for the musicians to do. In 1991, Yusuf joined the exodus that was decimating Sudan's middle class and its artistic community at the time. He moved to Cairo and became technical manager of Hassad Productions, the largest production house for Sudanese music ever. Over the next five years, Yusuf aided in composing, arranging and recording some 45 albums, over 400 songs, including works by the biggest names in Sudanese music. Wow! Abdel Ghadir Salim, uh, Mohamed Wardi, Abdel Karim Al-Kabli, Al-Balabil, uh, Omar, Ahsas, Muhammad Al-Amin, those big singers in Sudan, all of them, around, actually, not less than 35. Let's sample that work in a song by Abu Araki Al-Bakait, another brilliant artist sidelined for his refusal to support the Islamist Sudanese state. <laughs> Bahim 
Sudanese vocal legend Abu Araki Al-Bakait recorded in Cairo during the 1990s. In 2008, Abu Araki's 18-year-old son Mohammed came to the United States to take part in a festival of Sudanese music. He has never returned home. Today, he studies at the Berklee College of Music in Boston and he has performed on keyboards with the reggae band Spiritual Rez and in 2018, he recorded and toured with Tuareg guitarist Bombino of Niger. But Mohamed Araki's roots are squarely in Sudanese music. Here's a taste of a recent performance with Mohamed and a Berkeley ensemble accompanying visiting Sudanese vocalist Mohamed Tahir. <laughs> I started playing with my father when I was 15 years old and since he's one of the very well-known singers back home, that gave me ability to play with other Sudanese artists from older generation to younger generation. I remember going to weddings and uh, all of the big artists that they are friends with my dad, kind of I like grew up around them and I remember playing with very good artists that I've been uh, listening to their music most of my life. He's been against the government for a very long time. I call him the Sudanese fellow Kuti. He has different values and views than fellow, but he's very rebellious toward the government and uh, playing with him for a very long time with a lot of revolutionary songs, making people get upset by their lost rights. It was very powerful to see all of that. Just the police beating the audience in front of us when I was like 15, 16 years old and then my dad being taken away for investigations and stuff right after the show, so it was, it was very intense. As we will hear, the separation of South Sudan has affected Mohammed deeply. 
Back in 2008, Ahmad Sikenga told us that there used to be a strong musical interchange between the North and the South, and you can hear it in this track by the Hartum-based band, The Scorpions, from their 1980 album Jazz, Jazz, Jazz. There was a huge influence from the Taos on Northern Sudanese music in terms of uh, musical instrument styles. Many uh, Sudanese jazz singers uh, learned actually the guitar from Southern, by Southern Sudanese. And of course, Southern Sudanese, because of their proximity to Congo, the, the Congolese music is probably uh, the most common and uh, the most popular music in the South. Wow, the Scorpions with vocalist Saif Abubakar from their classic album Jazz, Jazz, Jazz. Just out as a reissue from the Habibi Funk label. And by the way, word is that the Scorpions regrouped in August 2018 to see if they could revive the old magic. <laughs> Let's hope so. For more on recent Sudanese releases, visit afropop.org. Among the refugees flooding out of southern Sudan during the long years of civil war were musicians. Guitarist and singer Marle Shambori managed to leave when benefactors in a Christian church helped him to pose as a Congolese refugee and slip into the Congo in 1996. So I went to Congo just like that. I can't speak their language. I can't speak Ningala, I can't speak French. The only language I speak was Arabic and, and English. I, my situation was bad and horrible. And it got worse with the fall of longtime dictator Mobutu Sese Seko the following year. The Congo descended into its own civil war. Malesh adapted quickly. Before long, he was surviving by singing gospel songs in Lingala in local churches. Malesh tells a harrowing story of his flight through Congo and Central African Republic, where he eventually found work as a translator for Sudanese refugees working in a diamond mine. Ultimately, he made his way to France and the United States, where he is now a student at Lincoln, Nebraska. Another southern Sudanese musician who made his way to the United States is Emmanuel Kembe. Emmanuel was born the son of a famous traditional singer. He grew up singing traditional music and in Christian choirs. Later in Khartoum, Emmanuel joined the group Luanga Musica, 
which had a strong Congolese flavor. When we met in New York, Emmanuel played us a bit of one of his recent compositions, Celebrate, an optimistic song of unity sung in Juba Arabic. After the 1989 coup, Emmanuel Kambe performed for war refugees from the south who lived in makeshift mud house communities around Hartum. This was during the civil war when SPLA rebels were battling government forces from the north. Uh, we joined uh, Khartoum International Festival of Music in uh, 92, 93 and 94. That was the time uh, I was arrested for singing the song called Shen Shen. Shen means ugly in Juba Arabic and uh, it tells about the uh, atrocities that was taking place in southern Sudan during the war. And uh, the song also gives hope that uh, one day peace will come. The Sudan security arrested me that the song was inciting uh, Saudi Sudanese for war. Said, okay, I'm singing about peace. So you brought me here means that you want war. So they're accusing me that uh, I belong to the SPLA uh, revolution. I was fighting the government from the south. It was a horrible time. Spent 29 days and uh, I was forced to go for exile. I was banned, I was stopped not to play music. What follows is an almost unbelievable flight through Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia. Emmanuel nearly starved to death in refugee camps and had to swim across a river to get into Kenya, only to be beaten by soldiers and driven back. As in Marlesh Mbori's case, Emmanuel's ability to play guitar and sing helped him survive a number of close calls. In Addis, he performed at Ethiopian superstar Mahmoud Ahmed's club. Unlike many stories of refugees from southern Sudan, Emmanuel's has a happy ending. He came to the United States in 97 and now lives in North Carolina, where he's recorded a reggae version of Shen Shen. Salam 
Emmanuel Kembe with Shen Shen from his album Cry for South Sudan. Well, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since that album came out in the early 2000s. We reached Professor Sikenga by telephone for an update. Basically, what happened since in 2005, a peace agreement known as Comprehensive Peace Agreement or CPA was signed by the Sudanese government and the Sudan People Liberation Movement, SPLM, that was headed by the late John Garang. So the agreement was supposed to end the conflict that was going on for more than two decades between South Sudanese rebels and the central government. Of course, this conflict led to the death and displacement of millions of people from South Sudan. But according to the provisions of the CPA, there would be a transitional period of five years after which South Sudanese people would decide if they want to remain part of the Sudan or to split and have their own uh, independent state. That referendum took place in January 2011 and the independent side won overwhelmingly. Professor Sikenga says this outcome was no surprise, given the bitter history. In the South, of course, independence was met with uh, a great deal of jubilation and euphoria. But in the North, the situation was totally different to many Northern Sudanese. The split of the South was considered a national disaster, a kind of catastrophic event that created a sense of collective failure and despair. Now, in the South, this euphoria actually did not last very long. The newly born state very quickly plunged in a bloody conflict between the government and the opposition. And it took an ethnic form between the Dinka and the Nuer. Millions of people were displaced and over 300,000 or so were killed. In the Sudan, the situation was not much better. You have the loss of oil revenue after the separation of the South. You have the ongoing conflict in Darfur, in the Nuba Mountains, in the Blue Nile. Also, you have endemic corruption. All of this led to very severe economic hardships. So basically, the outcome is that you have two failed states. That is where things are at this point. Two failed states with ongoing conflict in the South and economic stagnation in the North. Wow. Mohamed Araki has followed these events from his home in Boston, and he mourns the loss of a connection he once cherished. The musical life between the North and South vanished or disappeared. It's not there for a very long time, even before the separation. But I remember since I lived in the suburb Omdurman, there was a lot of community from South Sudan and they were very kind to us and we were very kind to them and uh, they came on their big celebrations and uh, it's kind of a beautiful interaction, like they will take me in the love and will dance with me. So we had that kind of connection with the Southern in a very personal way as a family, but as a big picture there wasn't that much connection. From my own perspective, I don't think the separation is good. If you have one apple, I think it's rather have the whole apple than split it to two pieces. Just to share the country as it used to be, it was a powerful thing to say that Sudan used to be the biggest country in Africa and how things got into now. It's very sad and not okay. Ahmed Sikanga has been going back to Sudan regularly throughout these difficult years. He says that during the transition between 2005 and 2011, Artum came alive, 
restrictions of music eased, the access to oil money from the South fueled the economy, bands and wedding parties flourished, and new radio and television stations cropped up. But after the separation of South Sudan, things went rapidly downhill. So we asked, what is Khartoum like now? There are several categories of performers. First, you have the older generation from the golden era. And it's important to note here the passing of Muhammad Wardi, the legendary singer, in 2012. And there were several others from that generation who passed away afterwards. So you have uh, a few from the golden era, such as Muhammad Al-Amin, Abu Araki, several others who have continued to produce music. There are also a number of groups such as Igda Jalad, the Choral of the College of Music and Drama, and they do recycle the old music, but they do also produce new music. Uh, some of the old jazz bands such as Chef Habil and a group called the Blue Stars have continued also to perform. You also have musical groups from different parts of the Sudan, either from the east, from Darfur, you have Omar Ihsas and several others who perform the dances and the music of these areas. But the musical scene, particularly in wedding parties, is dominated by dozens of young male and female singers who use mainly the keyboard to perform songs from the golden era and so forth. I would add that the forces of globalization and mobility also have impacted the situation. For instance, reggae, hip-hop, uh, and particularly the new urban music from Nigeria have also become very popular among the youth. So you could say that while the musical scene is vibrant, the production of new music is very limited. Afrobeats in Khartoum? <laughs> wow! Well, we're waiting for the local Sudanese version. Professor Sikenga mentioned Sharabil Ahmed, the king of Sudanese jazz. We are hearing a track from his 2017 album, Yadunia. Shahalbil Ahmed from his album Yadunia. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, public radio international affiliate stations around the US. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Carnegie Hall, Presenting Grammy Award winner Yusundur from Senegal, October 20th. More info at carnegiehall.org. We leave you with a recent recording from Agda Al Jalad, the ensemble of the College of Music and Drama in Khartoum. It's a remake of the song Ahaba Makan, or The Loveliest Place, a patriotic anthem to Sudan.
Special thanks to Ahmad Sikenga, Mohamed Araki, and Don Elder for their help with this program. Visit afropop.org to read our two interviews with Ahmad Sikenga and find out about recent releases of Sudanese music. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air. This program was mixed at Studio 44 in Brooklyn by Michael Jones. Banning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our director of operations is Ben Richmond, and I'm Georges Collinet. PRI Public Radio International.